1: From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, the killings of eight people in Georgia, six of them Asian American women, are intensifying fears already heightened by an increase in hate crimes against Asian Americans. We look at the toll on communities. And the confirmation of Deb Holland this week as U.S. Secretary of the Interior and first Native American Cabinet Secretary comes with celebration and high expectations. We'll look at what Holland faces as the leader of an agency that manages federal lands, natural resources, and the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's newly confirmed Secretary of the Interior and first Native American U.S. Cabinet Secretary Deb Holland as she gave her opening statement last month at her confirmation hearings.
3: hanu. Chairman Mansion, Ranking Member Barrasso, members of the committee, thank you so much for having me here today. I wouldn't be here... Without the love and support of my child, Soma, my partner, Skip, who is with me this morning, sitting behind me, my mom, Mary Toya, who is watching from Isleta Pueblo, my extended family, and generations of ancestors who have sacrificed so much so I could be here today. I acknowledge that we are on the ancestral homelands of the Tank, Anacostan, and Piscataway people.
1: And joining me to talk about the significance of Deb Holland's confirmation and how she's expected to lead the massive Interior Department, Dr. Greg Cajete, Professor of Native American Studies and Language Literacy and Sociocultural Studies at the University of New Mexico. His books include Native Science and Look to the Mountain, an Ecology of Indigenous Education. Professor Cajete, thanks so much for joining us.
4: Uh, well, it's a pleasure uh, to have this opportunity to be uh, with you for these uh, few minutes.
1: Thank you. And Dina Gilio whitaker is also with us, consultant and educator in environmental justice policy planning and author of As Long as Grass Grows, the Indigenous Fight for Environmental Justice from Colonization to Standing Rock. Dina Gilio whitaker is also a lecturer in American Indian Studies at Cal State University San Marcos. Welcome to Forum as well. Thanks. Thank you for inviting me. So, Gregory Kahete, I'd like to start with you. First, did you have a reaction to hearing Deb Holland speak in the Pueblo language when she made her opening statement at her historic confirmation hearing?
4: Yes, I I was very happy to hear her uh, speaking her Carisan language. Uh, I was not surprised because uh, many... uh, of uh, the people that are my age uh, who are Pueblo uh, do still uh, speak their languages. So um, again, just uh, very honored and very, very happy to hear her speak in her carisan tongue.
1: And can you give us a little bit of... Holland's biography, basically. I understand that she is a member of the Laguna Pueblo Nation, where people have lived in the land that is now New Mexico for some 35 generations. But I was also struck that you know, she had come from some difficult roots in terms of just financially and so on.
4: Uh, yes, I think if, if uh, you are aware of uh, her early history, uh, like many Native people, you know, her family uh, moved around a lot, uh, you know, following uh, uh, the, the work that they, they have to find. And also she she uh, grew up in a number of different kinds of communities. But uh, I think it's very obvious that she had her roots uh, in uh, Laguna Pueblo and would uh, come back as often as possible. And certainly when she uh, grew older and, and went to the University of New Mexico for both her uh, bachelor's degree in literature and also for her legal degree that Mm. that she remained very close uh, to her family and community in Laguna.
1: Yes, and she earned those degrees as a single mother with a young child. Dina Giglio Whitaker, what significance does Holland's confirmation hold for you?
3: Well I, you know, I think it's um, it's so inspiring as a native woman, myself as a Native woman, to see another native woman get appointed to such a high office and and the optics of that and you know, and everything behind that is so inspiring for for young Native women everywhere. And um, it's certainly a long time coming. It's been long overdue. Uh, to have any Native person in this, um, in in place in such a high uh, office, especially in a department that oversees all of Indian affairs, um, and all the land that that was, was and still is Indian country um, on some level. So it's, it's, uh, I'm, 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 I love it.
1: And what do you think the impact of that is of having somebody have the position of leadership in a department that really does have a major impact on the lives of native
3: people? I think that it's important because uh, because the, the way that the federal government deals with Indian country happens in the Department of the interior uh, it's you know, she's in a position of being able to have major influence on the kinds of policies and decisions and things that happen, um, you know, around Native issues. That said, I, you know, I think that it's, that it's fair to say that we have to be realistic about what's actually possible because um, the, the reality is that her boss is the federal government and um, she's not there representing Native people um, she's there to do to do the job of the federal government, and that's her, who her boss is. So um, there are some, you know, inherent tensions there, and the structure is the structure, and the structure is built on the logics of indigenous elimination. That is the history of this country, as you know, what we call a settler colonial state, and so we have to uh, keep all of that in mind as we even as we celebrate her appointment.
1: Well, I want to invite Joel Clement into this conversation. Joel Clement, a senior fellow at the Arctic In- Initiative at Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs and a former executive at the U.S. Department of the Interior. Joel Clement, thanks so much for joining us.
5: I'm delighted to be on. Thanks. Mina.
1: And to Dina Julia Whitaker's point, can you just remind us of the awesome responsibilities of the Interior Department?
5: Yeah, well, first of all, greetings from the ancestral home of the Wabanaki people here in the state of Maine. Um, The the Interior Department uh, is uh, unknown to so many people, but so immensely powerful within the federal government that controls 20% of of the American land area. Um, And bureaus uh, address issues as wide ranging and potentially in conflict as oil and gas uh, leasing and permitting, as well as biodiversity conservation. So there's a wide range of, of uh, mandates, but also uh, very importantly, in this case, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the Bureau of Indian Education. Uh, and these are bureaus that could really use some love. And uh, it's pretty fantastic and potentially transformative for DOI to have a Native American woman uh, leading that agency.
1: You said could really use some love. You've talked about the need to build back the department. Is that what you're talking about?
5: Yeah. But you know, it's not a recent problem. The budgets at Interior, as well as over at EPA, have been constrained uh, since the Reagan years by by Congress. And so it's very difficult to follow through and get things done. And a good example of that is the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Um, and probably the on in Indian country it, one of the most uh, egregious examples is the bureau of indian education they 're not uh, they're not resourced the way they need to be, uh, and as a result uh, educational opportunities uh, in indian country are are woefully uh, inadequate
1: and you've also it's been characterized too that in many ways what 's going to need to happen at the Interior Department is a reversal of the things that happened in the last four years. Can you talk about whether or not you agree with that and what you think the first uh, priorities need to be there?
5: Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, the previous administration came in trying to hobble the agency, um, which is not in the interests of the public. Um, they were working in the interests of, of industry in most cases. Um, and so reversing that is necessary, whether it's Uh, uh, restoring the Bears Ears and Grand Staircase-Escalante National Monument, which must be done, that was illegally uh, uh, shrunken down by the Trump administration, or addressing climate change, which is the issue that I was working on when I was at Interior. Uh, Deb Holland faces a difficult conundrum, and that is that science tells us we have to stop pulling fossil fuels out of the ground, and we have to do it on a very rapid timeline. Uh, to avoid uh, catastrophe and yet many states in this country depend on uh, some of those public lands fossil fuel projects uh, for resources including her home state of new mexico so she she's at the center of this conundrum and and will have to advance those innovations necessary to solve uh, the the climate crisis from the interior department side so quickly repairing what was done in the previous administration and very quickly pivoting to, uh, to making change on how the agency addresses things like leasing and permitting uh, for fossil fuels, it, it's not going to be easy. And there are two things for sure. One, we know the fossil fuel industry is not going to be helpful on that. And two, uh, Deb Holland is known to be a champion of the public interest, and that's been the case uh, for a long time. So uh, that gives us a lot of hope uh, that some good things will start to happen at Interior.
1: Yes, well, Republican opposition to her confirmation. It did center on Holland's history of fighting uh, fossil fuel industries, oil and gas exploration. And I I think you've noted that she was confirmed on a 51-40 vote. So it sounds like you're saying that she'll need to be very strategic in terms of how she handles this. Do you want to say more about that strategic need?
5: Yeah, I mean, that that is tricky. The politics of the day are, are difficult right now. Um, but, you know, she has announced, as has the administration uh, more broadly, that science is back. The decision making is going to include science, that scientists and experts will be at the table and informing public policy in a way that certainly was not the case in the last administration. In my mind, that's very bipartisan. So I'm hoping uh, that, regardless of of the things she has championed in the past, she she knows she has to to walk this fine line. But I do think, looking at it through the science lens, focusing on those win win situations, this administration has talked a lot about the job opportunities that will come out of a of a uh, the transition to renewable energy. That has to happen within Interior. There there needs to be you know they'll need training programs and and other things to show workers that there'll be jobs to demonstrate this whole uh, notion that was captured in the green new deal language that a transition to away from fossil fuels is ultimately very good for this country and very good for the economy it's a difficult line to walk in today's political environment but it is important that we get there
1: and again, Joel Clement is a former executive at the U.S. Department of the Interior, a senior fellow at Harvard. Dina Gilio Whitaker is a lecturer in American Indian Studies at Cal State University, San Marcos. And Greg Cajete is a professor of Native American Studies and Language Literacy and Sociocultural Studies at the University of New. New Mexico. You, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation with your reaction and questions about Deb Holland's confirmation and your hopes for policy and action under her leadership. Call us 866-733-6786 or email us forum at kqed.org. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome back to Forum, I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about Deb Holland making history as the first Native American cabinet secretary and the agenda ahead of her as secretary of the interior. I'm talking with Professor Greg Cajete, Native American Studies and Language Literacy and Sociocultural Studies at the University of New Mexico, Dina Gilio whitaker consultant and educator in environmental justice policy planning and a lecturer in American Indian studies at Cal State University San Marcos. Joel Clement is also with us, senior fellow at the Arctic Initiative at Harvard's Kennedy School's Center for Science and International Studies and a former executive at the U.S. Department of the Interior. What are your questions about Deb Holland? Your reaction to Deb Holland's confirmation? For Native American listeners, does this feel like a significant step to you in representation? Why or why not? And what are your hopes for policy or action under Secretary Holland's leadership within the Biden administration? Again, give us a call 866 733 6786. 866 733 6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And Greg Kahete, of course, as we were talking about the massive responsibilities of the Interior Department, among those, of course, is really overseeing the well-being of the nation's nearly 2 million Native people. And I'm wondering, Greg Kahete, what you think specifically Deb Holland can do with regard to that, that would be different from her predecessors.
4: I I believe it's it's going to be um uh, her experience as a native person uh, working particularly in the, the areas of uh, environmental justice uh the areas related to uh mining for for example in New Mexico uranium mining in in New Mexico and some of the issues that that has continued to bring forward you know on our lands or on our reservations uh, I would call it a kind of indigenous consciousness that uh, I know that Deb Holland uh, has uh, and also the lived experience she has mm-hmm. as a Native woman uh, given the challenges that she has come through uh, during her own life journey. So uh, for me, this is a very important uh, difference between herself and really any other secretary uh, up to this point in time. Because she has a a kind of an empathy that you cannot yet uh, accept by having the lived experience that she has uh, and having developed a a very comprehensive understanding of uh, the issues that face Native people today and particularly uh, our relationship to the land because Indigenous peoples are land-based peoples. And many of the struggles that we have had with the federal government over over our history uh, has been generally around land and how land has been taken or uh, misused or in the cases of sacred sites, for example, uh, like Chaco Canyon here in New Mexico has been threatened uh, by, um, uh, you know, appropriated interests, let's put it that way. And I think that uh, that's that kind of consciousness, that kind of understanding uh, is going to to move her in some very important directions also know that she's a very uh, a, a very uh, uh, you know just person so I think she's going to be a breath of fresh air uh, to many of the uh, the workers you know in the uh, interior department uh, because she she is actually a, a person that really can can help, I think, with uh, many of the issues that I know that they are facing. And then finally, I would say, you know, in terms of the the, the mention, Joel mentioned uh, native education, uh, the Interior Department does control the Bureau of uh, Indian Education, the BIE. And of course, being an educator, I am, I am very painfully aware of the inadequacies, uh, the issues, and the deep bureaucracy, unfortunately, uh, that has taken over the BIEE to the extent that uh, many Native uh, communities trying to create their own community programs run into uh, not only the state, but also the federal uh, issues of bureaucracy and trying to create their own education systems.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: So I'm hoping that, uh, you know, she will begin to address some of those long-standing. Uh, conflicts, you know, between uh, communities trying to form their own forms of uh, or introduce their community education programs in the midst of um, many of the kinds of issues that they have to face with the BIE.
1: Could you give a specific example of how some of these tensions are playing out? The BIE.
4: Well, um, you know, part of the movement uh, in American Indian education has been to uh, self-determine. And many of the communities, uh, Native communities, have begun to uh, explore or have even actually begin, begun to implement uh, a community-controlled school system uh, on their reservations. Uh, we call these community schools uh It is funded through the Bureau of Indian Affairs, but largely left to the community to um, to administer you know uh, let's say an elementary school and uh in many cases uh the uh, funding that is provided is uh really uh less than adequate uh also the oversight on the part of uh the bureau of uh, Indian education. Uh, It tends to be extremely bureaucratic. Um, The interest tends to be more in fulfilling the mandates of the Bureau as opposed to the needs of the uh, community uh, with regard to their education. And uh, so there tends to be then what I would call uh, intractable conflict that begins to evolve as a result of uh, many of these schools trying to come into being. Um, And uh, I think that these are the kinds of things that really need uh, uh, to be listened to and really need someone who has a sensitivity for the kinds of issues that Native people face. Hmm. Uh, uh, So I think that that's going to make a big difference if she steps into that realm of intractable conflict. Uh, One would say that the whole relationship between Native people and the federal government is is fraught with intractable conflict, and native peoples have found ways, in many cases, to to move around that, uh, to to or to live through that. But I think uh, we really have to begin to look at, you know, what are the sources of these conflicts and how can we overcome them and move forward in the in the challenge. Uh, Joel spoke of one conflict, certainly overall, in terms of climate change and the need for uh, changes in our government related to car climate change but yet also the special interest still hold a great deal of power and influence uh, in terms of how that uh, how that challenge will be handled you know through the department of interior
1: well tom writes now that we finally have a native american cabinet official how likely is it that the united states will finally ratify International Labor Organization Convention 169, which requires prior consultation with Indigenous communities that may be detrimentally impacted by a mining energy or infrastructure project. Similarly, how likely is the federal government to now incorporate the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples' requirement of free, prior, and informed consent before permitting projects that might detrimentally impact Native American communities? Dina Julia Whitaker, do you have a response for Tom? Dina Julia Whitaker,
3: are you there? Oops, sorry, I forgot to unmute myself. <laughs> That's okay. Um, <laughs> um, it's something that I've written quite a bit about. I wrote about it in my last book, "As Long as Grass Grows," and um, there's this, you know, in the world of um, the fed- the relations between tribal governments and the federal government, is this this um, this mechanism of of con- what's consultation. So in in projects, development projects that involve tribal lands or treaty lands, uh, the federal government is required to, by federal law, to consult with tribes, to meaningfully, that's the language that they use, to meaningfully consult with tribes. Um, and, you know, the problem is, is that there's there's a certain arbitrariness to this idea of consultation Um, And there is no real definition of what meaningful consultation looks like. Mm. Um, And the reason that we had the Standing Rock conflict in 2016 was because in the end, there was the recognition that the the federal government had, in fact, not adequately consulted with the Standing Rock Sioux tribe. Um, which was why the Obama administration you know stopped the, the the perning the the final permit that goes under the under the lake for that pipeline. Um, and so in but in the meantime we have as Tom mentioned this uh, thing that we call free prior and informed consent, which is a one of the core, uh, values or rights enshrined in the U.N. Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And, and you know, it's kind of important to point out at this point that um, that declaration was passed by the U.N. General Assembly in 2007, and the United States was the last country in the U.N. General Assembly, basically in the world, to actually endorse it. So the U.S. did not endorse it until 2010 again under the Obama administration, but um, but even then they in, they endorsed it with a 15-page uh, list of um, disclaimers basically, and they didn't they didn't really disclaim this right to free prior and informed consent, but at the same time they have not actually implemented. It at all. And certainly again, Standing Rock is a perfect example. Um, and consent is really, really different than consultation. Um, consent means that hmm. that tribes actually have uh, you know a, a veto power. They they actually have the right to say no. I mean, not they already said no to it to begin with, but it but under a consultation kind of mechanism, it doesn't hold really any weight. And so one of the things that uh, that would be very powerful is if there would be some kind, you know, a push, and this is something that Deb Halland, you know, I would think would have uh, power to do is to really make it a standard practice within these kinds of permit, you know, development permitting projects to really take seriously the the power of uh, you know of recognizing tribes' abilities to say no, or to give them, you know, to reinforce um, this, this mechanism of consent. It's something that I think that's really, uh, you know, scares federal officials, federal governments, especially oil interests, um, um, you know, and I think that's for conservatives, like I think that's, you know, definitely something they don't want to see. They don't want to see tribal governments have that kind of power um, but yet, you know, in theory, the federal government has has agreed to it. So, mm. um, so there's got to be a way for them to actually implement it if if they really, you know, ab- abide by these oh. values.
1: Sounds like it could be huge. Let me go to Trout at San Rafael. Hi, Trout. What's your question?
2: Hi. Um, first off, I just want to say that I'm really thrilled that Deb Holland is going to be doing what she's doing, and I was wondering whether or not. Um, she was going to move the Department of Interior back to Washington, D.C. after the previous administrations pushing it into Colorado.
1: Oh, that's right. Um, Joel Clement, response to Trout on that.
5: Yeah, thanks for asking that question. Now, now the, the Department of the Interior did not move. Uh, the headquarters is still in Washington, but the headquarters for the Bureau of Land Management was moved out to Colorado. And uh, you know, it, it's most of the people at BLM already work out West. So the the suggestion that it was to move the agency where the work was is disingenuous. And in fact, uh, the people that were moved are the people that were the congressional liaisons, the budget liaisons, and, and the people working with other agencies in DC. So it was very transparently an effort to gut the leadership of, of the BLM. So I would hope Soon after uh, Deb Holland comes in, there's uh, action to move the BLM headquarters back to DC where they belong. The challenge, of course, is that the congressional delegation in Colorado likes having uh, the HQ out there.
1: Mm. Well, let me go to Kevin in Castro Valley next. Hi, Kevin.
2: Hi, thanks so much for having me this morning. uh, I work with a number of Native American tribes in Washington and, and advocate for them so they can help access uh, health care, education, housing, all these trust responsibilities. Uh, and they're all so excited about Secretary Holland, and it feels great to call her Secretary Holland. One thing I know a lot of tribal governments in the United States are hopeful about is that she can find a way to address the Cartieri decision. It's a Supreme Court decision from 2009 that found that tribal governments can only have land taken into trust if they were recognized in 1934 when a bill known as the Indian Reorganization Act was passed. As you can imagine, of course, with the history between the federal government and tribal governments, so many tribal nations in the United States weren't officially recognized by the government at that time. So it's a real hindrance. Uh, for them to take control of their own land and achieve sovereignty over their own land. The last two administrations have addressed it in kind of a patchwork, case-by-case fashion, but really finding an overall solution to that Mm. issue would go such a long way.
1: Kevin, thank you for for sharing that. And Robin writes, I'm so happy to have Deb Holland as the new Secretary of the Interior. I'm hoping that in the next four years that she'll be able to speed up the process of recognizing Native tribes like the Ohlone. I was struck by something that you said, uh, Dina Julia Whitaker, which you, you were talking about how there will be inherent tensions between the fact that her boss is the federal government, and that she won't necessarily be working directly for, say, Indian Country. Can you just talk a little bit more about what you are watching for in terms of how she navigates this tension, or what you're hearing that activists are watching for in this arena?
3: Um, you know, one of the things it'll, I think, what's really people are going to be watching is is her policies around land use, as Dr. Cajete was. I'm talking about before about places like Chaco Canyon. This is something that she has talked about a lot and has moved to um, provide to to make sure that there are protections for that place. Um, and the, the reason you know, in that particular area is because uranium mining has been so um, detrimental and continues to be detrimental, even though because of the the abandoned mines that that are all around the whole Four Corners region and how it continues to contaminate um, the land and air and water there. Um, So so I think probably land issues will be the number one thing that people are looking towards. I know that this concept that I was talking about just uh, a minute ago, free prior and informed consent, is something that is beginning to heat up it's, um, I was listening to a webinar just a couple of weeks ago um, by an organization called the Native, Organa- see, Native Organizers Alliance. I think that that's what it's called. Um, and they were talking about that. These were some of the people involved in um, Standing Rocks and tribal members of the Standing Rocks Sioux Tribe. Um, so it'll be, you know, I think the land issues is really what's going to be Um, what people are going to be looking at. And also the protection of, again, of sacred sites like Chaco Canyon, but also the restoring of um, places like Bears Ears and um, and Grand Staircase Escalante and other places to make sure that the Antiquities Act is is honored and that there, you know, will be um, even additional kinds of protections made and efforts to return land. I mean, that's something we have to be willing to talk about too. This land back movement is not going away. Um, there there has been an int- interestingly enough, even under the, the uh, Trump administration, there have been um, the returns of large sections of, of what are considered public lands. Um, and that's interesting phenomenon. Well, Um,
1: Dina Julia Whitaker, I just want to thank you so much for coming on today. Consultant Educator on Environmental Justice Policy Planning and Joel Clement, Senior Fellow for the Arctic Initiative at Harvard Kennedy School and Dr. Greg Cajete, Professor of Native American Studies and Language Literacy and Sociocultural Studies at the University of New Mexico. Really appreciated having all of your analyses. A lot to watch moving forward. We have another segment of Forum next. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim.